from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, April 10th. I'm Marco Werman. A key ruling paves the way for the extradition of five terror suspects from Britain to the U.S. These men are accused of very serious offenses in the United States, and it's right that they should be tried in the United States. We'll have details, and later, on the campaign trail in Venezuela, some say a youthful challenger has a good chance of unseating the veteran Hugo Chavez. Chavez is now an old man, sick old man. Plus, the dangers of praising Fidel Castro in Florida. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of NOVA with Deadliest Tornadoes. Scientists are striving to understand the forces at work behind last year's most extreme tornado outbreak in decades. Wednesday, April 11th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It's looking increasingly likely that several men wanted on terrorism charges in the United States but held in Britain will face trial here after all. Today, Europe's top human rights court ruled that Britain can extradite the men to the U.S. The world's Laura Lynch has the details. There are five men subject to today's judgment, but one is far more high-profile than the rest, both for his appearance and his outspoken extremist views. Every time you will pass through that mosque, something will sting your heart. And if your heart is dead, it will be stunned in the day of judgment. That was Abu Hamza preaching outside the Finsbury Park Mosque in London nearly a decade ago. He's blind in one eye and has a hook for a hand. Hamza, also known as Mustafa Kamal Mustafa, was sentenced to seven years in a British prison for inciting murder and racial hatred. While he was still in prison, the U.S. issued its extradition request. This man, an informant against Hamza, was delighted to hear today's ruling. At the very, very beginning for me, he was already a terrorist-in-chief because he was the spiritual leader of the Algerian group, the GIA. He was raising money for them. He was recruiting people here in London. He speak about jihad, about killing the unbelievers. He used to call America as the United Snake of America. U.S. authorities want Abu Hamza on 11 charges, including planning a terrorist training camp in Oregon and plotting to provide material support to terrorists. Hamza, like the others, argued the long prison sentences in solitary confinement in American supermax prisons would violate their human rights. Lawyer Claire Ovi, speaking for the European court, said the judges disagreed. The court has held that basically if these applicants are convicted and are sentenced to all life sentences without possibility of parole in the U.S., that will mean that they've basically been convicted of very serious offences and that uh, these sentences will not be grossly disproportionate and will not therefore amount to inhuman and degrading treatment. The ruling comes as a bitter disappointment for the family of another defendant, Babar Ahmad. He's accused of creating websites that raised money, recruited fighters and provided equipment for terrorists. Ahmad has been held without trial for eight years. 
Today, his father Ashfaq said his son has been a victim of abusive process. Baba is a British citizen, accused of a crime said to have been committed in the UK, and all the evidence against him was gathered in this country. Nevertheless, British justice appears to have been subcontracted to the US. The case has been seen as a judgment, in effect, of the US prison system. Lord Alex Carlyle was the terrorism law watchdog under Tony Blair's government. This is an entirely sensible decision. The United States is a friendly country. It has a fair justice system. I don't like some aspects of its penal system, but it's a sovereign and lawful system. And it would have been extraordinary if the European Court of Human Rights had uh, discriminated against the American justice system. These men are accused of very serious offences in the United States, and it's right that they should be tried in the United States. The decision isn't just a win for the U.S. Justice Department. It's also an important victory for the British government. It's been subject to increasing criticism for its enforcement of laws on deportation and extradition, particularly to the United States. Still, these men won't be boarding planes to America anytime soon. The court's procedures call for a three-month waiting period before the ruling is final, and the men still have one slim chance to appeal to the Grand Chamber, which could tie up the case for many more months to come. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in London. Seth Jones is the author of the forthcoming book, Hunting in the Shadows, the Pursuit of Al-Qaeda Since 9-11. Seth Jones, why is the U.S. so intent on getting these terrorism suspects to stand trial on American soil? Well, several of them have been connected to uh, terrorist activities in the United States. Abu Hamza al-Masri, for example, who's an Egyptian Sunni activist. Uh, The charges against him will center around his material support to al-Qaeda, including um, al-Qaeda activities that target the United States, as well as his involvement in establishing training camps in the U.S. state of Oregon. So material support, I mean, that's not the same thing as organizing some plot or a bombing. Uh, What does that actually mean? I mean, how dangerous are any of these men? Well, uh, Abu Hamza al-Masri, and again, it's not entirely clear what the United States has on him. As we found in previous uh, terrorism cases, when the uh, United States decides to formally prosecute someone in court, they will provide information based on signals intelligence intercepts, declassified intelligence. So there are some questions about how much involvement he has. If it can be demonstrated that he provided intelligence, money, pushing goods to al-Qaeda operatives overseas to conduct attacks, he will be in pretty serious trouble in the U.S. court system. One case we've been following uh, is that of Bavar Ahmed, who uh, allegedly ran a website geared to terrorists, and he's been held in a British prison for eight years Most people in the U.S. have never heard of him. Uh, Why does the U.S. want him so badly? Well, the U.S. has prosecuted a range of individuals over the past several years for involvement in running jihadi websites, especially ones that are encouraging individuals to target the United States and ones that are pushing finances to al-Qaeda. With the case of uh, Babar Ahmed, he is accused of running uh, Assam.com, a pro-jihad website. And the issue then will hinge on what connections he has and has had to known uh, terrorists uh, plotting attacks against the United States and its interests. You've been writing about what we learned from counterterrorism strategies since 9-11, Seth. What, what does this case represent to the United States in the fight against terrorism? Well, in the fight against terrorism, this represents a, an increasing 
shift over the past several years to prosecuting individuals in civilian courts. I mean, the Obama administration has attempted to prosecute some individuals in military courts, but there is a much greater effort over the past several years to prosecute anyone involved in terrorist activity in civilian courts in the United States. This fits into, I think, uh, a, a growing push from the Obama administration to get away from some of the previous efforts by the Bush administration on the um, military tribunals. And describe for us the, the, the difference that'll make in, in this whole so-called fight on terrorism that, that'll be tried in a civilian court. A couple of things. One is, in almost all cases of efforts to prosecute somebody in a civilian court, there is a much more transparency. Eventually, that information becomes public. I mean, I've used almost all of uh, the previous civilian cases in my most recent book because it's publicly available. Second, it does add an air of legitimacy to um, prosecution because just the stigma of a military prosecution and a, a military tribunal provide some air of illegitimacy. At least it raises questions about whether it's a fair and open trial. And I think a civilian court with a civilian judge often tends to undermine overseas concerns. Seth Jones, author of the forthcoming Hunting in the Shadows, the Pursuit of Al-Qaeda since 9-11. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. For more on the Babar Ahmed case, go to theworld.org. Terrorism has been an issue in the French presidential race. Incumbent Nicolas Sarkozy was trailing in the polls behind socialist candidate Francois Hollande. But then came last month's shootings in Toulouse. A gunman killed seven people before police shot him dead. Sarkozy was praised for his handling of the attacks, and he climbed in the polls. But as the world's Jerry Haddon reports from Paris, it may not be enough for Sarkozy to clinch a second term. President Sarkozy shines brightest when dealing with security issues. After the shootings in Toulouse, his popularity shot up nearly 10 points in the polls. Cet acte est odieux, ne peut pas rester impuni. These attacks are odious, Sarkozy told the French in a national TV address as police closed in on the Toulouse shooter. This won't go unpunished, he said. I assure you that we have mobilized all the means necessary to bring this criminal to justice. Soon after, police killed suspect Mohamed Mera in a shootout. Before dying, Mera claimed links to al-Qaeda. The nation was shocked, and yet for all the trauma and terrorism overtones, security as an election issue is fading fast. French journalist David Servenet says it's simply been overshadowed. Because I think the, the economic crisis and in the most recent poor, the first priority of the French people are the economic situation and security comes lower down as a main preoccupation for the people. That's in part because French unemployment is about 10% and will likely rise because industrial output is slumping. When you talk elections to people on the streets of Paris, security doesn't even come up. Muriel Dufres, a 60-year-old former restaurant owner, says unemployment is her number one concern. She says there are more and more people on the street while the rich just get richer. Presidential candidate François Hollande has tried to tap into that sentiment. He's promised to tax France's richest at a whopping 75 percent. Sarkozy has countered by vowing to flush out and tax French fortunes hidden in overseas safe havens. But the president knows that voters largely blame him for the tough economic times, so he's trying to keep the terrorism threat front and center. The trauma of the shootings is profound in France, Sarkozy told French radio in the days following the ordeal. 
I don't want to make comparisons, he said, but our horror is a little like that of the September 11th attacks in New York. Sarkozy was criticized for that comparison, but he shows no sign of backing off. His security platform includes tightening borders and deporting suspected foreign terrorists. Since the Toulouse shootings, he's ordered police to round up such suspects around the country. More than 20 people have been arrested, and half of them charged for plotting against the republic. But investigative reporter Gérard Davé says the sweeps are just an election ploy. In France, we have a association He says, in France, we have a law against terrorism that lets police arrest people before committing terrorism, and it's been used very often. That's why we haven't had an attack in 17 years. So we knew very well who these latest arrestees were, but the law wasn't used against them until after Toulouse. Still, the raids not only help Sarkozy keep the spotlight off the economy, they also help fend off the spoiler candidate on the far right. Marine Le Pen of the National Front has a nationalistic anti-immigrant platform. At the moment, Le Pen polls in third place. Her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, famously made it to the presidential runoff in the 2002 elections, shocking France's left. But this year, the left, the far left, has its own dark horse. Nous nous sommes rassemblés parce que nous allons faire de cette élection une insurrection civique. Jean-Luc Mélenchon is a talented orator who brought some 20,000 people out to a recent rally in Paris. He's promised to create more state jobs, not cut them, lower the retirement age, punish banks, ditch austerity. The extreme left and extreme right have both gained traction due to the economic crisis, but neither candidate looks strong enough to make it to France's second round of voting in May. That would leave Sarkozy and Hollande in a runoff, and polls suggest Hollande would win as long as the economy remains the main issue. On the streets of Paris, guys like this business manager, Jean-Michel Soriano, give the impression that the economy will, in fact, dominate the race. The problem de la France, moi je vous le dire. You know what France's problem is, Soriano says? I'll tell you. Our vacations in October, Christmas, February, April, our long weekends, our 35-hour work week, the fact that 80% of the French want to be civil servants. The Chinese, he says, work day and night, and we just want more vacation time. He says we're hiding our heads in the sand. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Paris. Ahead on The World, Formula One ponders a race in Bahrain on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The manager of baseball's Miami Marlins made an unprecedented apology today. The notoriously abrasive Ozzie Guillen may have gone one step too far when he told Time magazine that he, quote, loved Fidel Castro. The result has been a firestorm of criticism for the Marlins manager whose team plays in a new stadium in Miami's Little Havana. I apologize to the people here outside who are looking at me. And I'm, I'm very, very, very sorry about the, the problem, about what's what happening. And I will do everything to make him better. Everything in my power to make him better. Guillen went on to say, I was thinking in Spanish and said it wrong in English. He said he meant to say he was surprised Fidel Castro stayed in power so long, considering what he's done. The Marlins have now suspended Guillen for five games with immediate effect. 
Andy Gomez is assistant provost of the University of Miami and a Marlins fan himself, a season ticket holder, in fact. Right, Andy? So Absolutely. On a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is his gaffe from Ozzie Guillen? I would say it's uh, a 6 or a 7, to be very honest with you. But I should say I'm a, I'm a bigger Boston Red Sox fan. <laughs> it's about a 6 and a 7. But the issue here, Marco, is uh, one has to realize, and I do as an academic, how dangerous ignorance can be. And what do you mean by that? Who's ignorant here? Oh, Aussie. I mean, not, not only has he always had a quick mouth to say what comes to his head, whether it's in Spanish or English, but to come to Miami, where Cubans skated and made it their home after Castro took over in 1959, and to make such an insensitive statement is absolutely ludicrous. But he's, he's done it before. He did it about Hugo Chavez. He should stick to what he knows. And he knows very little, clearly, about international politics and what's going on around the world. In order to understand the world, you have to live in Miami. But people are saying, you know, Guillen has a right to free speech. Why should he be penalized for his comments? If there's one thing that I'm, I feel very strong about, particularly having come back from Cuba with a Pope's visit myself. Mm. Freedom of speech is something that I'm very protective of. But with that freedom of speech also comes a sense of responsibility. And that sense of responsibility is to know a little bit about what you're talking about and being aware who might you hurt with some of these comments. So apparently talk shows in South Florida have been swamped with calls demanding Guillen oh, be fired. Is, is a five-game suspension going to be enough to, to calm the, the heat down there? As an academic, as a Cuban-American, and as a modern season ticket holder, I take my hat off to the ownership and management of the Marlins by recognizing the sensitivity of this ludicrous remark and suspending him for five games. I think that's quite sufficient. I don't think it calls for a firing at this time at all. Andy Gomez, assistant provost at the University of Miami. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Marco. As we heard very briefly there, another Latin American leftist leader who was once a subject of Ozzie Guillen's admiration is Hugo Chavez. The Venezuelan president happens to be in Cuba right now. He's there to undergo another round of radiation therapy as part of his ongoing cancer treatment. This year is proving to be a big test for Chavez, and not just because of his health. He's also facing a big challenge in a presidential vote this October. After years of infighting, Venezuela's opposition has united behind a single candidate to take on Chavez. He's Enrique Capriles, a 39-year-old lawyer with a reputation for winning tough elections. John Otis has a story from Venezuela. In the western town of El Vigia, Enrique Capriles goes door-to-door to drum up support. Capriles bubbles with optimism, even though we're in a traditionally pro-Chavez neighborhood. Capriles assures me that Chavez's Bolivarian revolution is running out of steam because of high crime and unemployment. He says, after 13 years, the only thing the government offers is promises. There are no results. Promises work when you are new, but not when you've spent many years in power. Capriles is confident because he's never lost an election. 
After winning a legislative seat in 1998, Capriles was appointed president of the National Congress when he was just 27. He later served as mayor of a Caracas suburb and was elected governor of Miranda State in 2008. Capriles won the opposition primary in February. Now he says he's ready to take on Chavez, who draws support mainly from the poor and working class. He says many outsiders think that the only person who has support among the poor is Chavez, which is absolutely false. If that were the case, I never would have been elected governor and I wouldn't be a viable presidential candidate. Capriles calls himself a centrist in the mold of Brazil's former president Lula. Capriles promises to maintain Chavez's social welfare programs while ditching the president's authoritarian style. Gloria Contreras is a former Chavez supporter in El Vigia. She's tired of the power outages and food shortages. We are angry. We no longer want Chavez as our president. I want someone else, and that's why I'm voting for Capriles. As Capriles stumps for votes, Chavez has been receiving radiation treatment in Cuba for cancer. The illness has limited the 57-year-old president to just a few personal appearances. And if his condition worsens, it could prevent him from running in the election, says Miguel Otero, editor of the Caracas daily El Nacional. People see Chavez as a superhero. If he's sick, they don't see him like that. Chavez is now an old man, sick old man. Still, Chavez controls the bureaucracy and is pumping huge sums into health, education, and housing programs ahead of the voting. What's more, his government controls most Venezuelan TV stations. Chavez is waging his campaign on television. He regularly takes to the airwaves for hours to savage the opposition. The great Bolivian victory next October 7th has already been written. And you, sirs, in the opposition, you will continue to be in the opposition for at least the next 500 years. If Chavez recovers and wins another six-year term, it would mean two decades in office for him. And there are no term limits in Venezuela, so he could stay in power even longer. That's just fine with his most fervent supporters, like El Vigia taxi driver Evin Pereira. He says Chavez has given us health, education, and nutrition programs. He's done everything for the people. So if we turn our backs on him now, we would be traitors. The latest polls show Chavez in the lead, but Capriles claims he will turn the tide. And if he wins, Capriles pledges to push for a constitutional ban on unlimited presidential terms that have helped Chavez stay in power for so long. For The World, I'm John Otis, El Vigia, Venezuela. We have photos of Capriles on the campaign trail at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the daughter of a jailed activist in Bahrain supports his hunger strike. I don't feel like that this is a situation in which we should be crying or, you know, mourning him, but rather it should make us feel proud that someone has dedicated his life to this extent that he's willing to give it up for human rights and for his country. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The Arab Spring didn't last long in the Gulf Kingdom of Bahrain. The kingdom's majority Shiites began to protest in February of last year, seeking a greater political voice. But their protests were quickly crushed in a deadly crackdown by Bahrain's Sunni ruling family. Well, a year later, there are protests in Bahrain again. Last week, thousands of demonstrators took to the streets to demand the release of a jail human rights campaigner. Abdul Hadi al-Hawaja was jailed for life two months ago for his part in anti-government protests last year. He's been on a hunger strike ever since. Al-Hawaji's family say he's being abused in the military hospital where he's being kept during his hunger strike. Miriam al-Hawaja is the daughter of Abdul Hadi al-Hawaja, and I'd like to know, Miriam, when was the last time you spoke with your father? The last time I spoke with my father personally was uh, February 8th, 2012, when he announced the night that he announced his hunger strike. But I personally have, haven't been able to speak to him again since then. And what do you know about his physical condition at present? Well, we don't really know what condition he's in at the moment because uh, nobody's being allowed to see him or speak to him. Last we know is what he told my mother when he called her approximately two, day, two days ago. Uh, when he told her that he was being mistreated, uh, she said that he could barely breathe while he was talking. Um, and part of the mistreatment that he was receiving in the military hospital, which he was tortured in last year, was that, for example, they would bring in food into his room and leave it there, knowing that he's on hunger strike and that he doesn't eat. So he has access to a telephone. Was that telephone call a rarity? That telephone call is a rarity, and it's according to the whims and wants of the people in charge, and they decide when to allow him to call and when not to. For people who don't know uh, who Abdul Hadi al-Hawaja is, uh, tell us uh, about your father and why he was protesting in the first place. My father is dubbed the godfather of human rights in Bahrain, but he's also an internationally known human rights figure, which means that he's worked very closely, or even in some cases trained, a lot of the activists that are working across the Middle East and North Africa region today. So that, that's one situation that he's known in. He took part in the protests in Bahrain, and his job was uh, mainly an educational job, which was uh, he went around and talked to especially the youth, uh, educating them about what their rights are and what the difference in uh, demanding, for example, the fall of the regime or the fall of a government is and uh, what it means to have peaceful resistance. Why is your father in prison? He faced the charges of um, attempting to overthrow the government and also being part of a terrorist group, amongst other charges. But this was um, done in a military court, and his appeal was also rejected in a military court. Uh, Now, he was never given a fair trial according to the international standards. And it's important to point out that even if he was given a trial in a normal courtroom, which he wasn't, Bahrain still does not have an independent judiciary system which can um, provide people with a fair trial. Are you worried your father's going to die in prison? As his daughter, of course, I am worried that, God forbid, my father may die. But at the same time, I don't feel that this is a situation for mourning or weakness, but rather it's a sign or a stand of strength and hope. Even if, God forbid, my father dies, he will continue to live on in each and every one of us. 
I don't feel like that this is a situation in which we should be crying or, you know, mourning him, but rather it should make us feel proud that someone has dedicated his life to this extent that he's willing to give it up for human rights and for his country. Now, the Bahraini Ministry of Human Rights and Social Development uh, has responded to criticism from groups like Human Rights Watch, uh, who've been watching your father's case. And uh, the ministry says that critics ignore the positive developments in the country and the continuation of the reform process. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that Bahrain has been talking about reforms and progress for more than 10 years now. Um, since 2001, they've they've been promising a constitutional monarchy and a parliament with full legislative powers, as among many, many other things like freedoms and human rights and so on. Since the uprising in Bahrain, which started on the 14th of February 2011, people until this day continue to be killed, arbitrarily arrested, tortured, and many other amongst many other violations that are continuing today at a time when the Bahraini government is saying that they have reformed, that they have changed, and that everything is back to normal in the country. Miriam Al-Khawaja, daughter of Bahraini hunger striker Abdelhadi Al-Khawaja, we requested a response from the government of Bahrain. In a written statement, a spokesperson said that Abdelhadi Al-Khawaja's condition is currently stable and has been confirmed as stable for the past few days by the Bahrain Public Prosecution as well as three independent doctors, including an independent Danish doctor. The statement goes on to say that much of the news that is being reported online are rumors and false allegations. We've posted the full statement at theworld.org. The kingdom's efforts to get everything back to normal include hosting a major international sporting event. The Formula One Grand Prix of Bahrain is scheduled for April 22nd. Last year's Bahraini Grand Prix was canceled because of the unrest there. But this year, organizers say they're going ahead as planned. Not everyone in the Formula One world is comfortable with that, though. Damon Hill won the Formula One World Championship in 1996 and is now a TV commentator. The teams are now starting to express their concerns. And I think that maybe people were not sure about the Bahrain race. They wanted, I think they want to go to Bahrain under the right conditions. The problem has been really, from my point of view, my own personal point has been that I don't believe that it's right to announce you're going to go to the race without making some acknowledgement of the protest. Damon, do you feel personally conflicted by this? Um, I have every sympathy for people who want to make their protests and they want to make their voice heard, uh, provided it's done non-violently and, and reasonably. But I mean, just recently had a very serious incident last night, I think, where seven policemen were hurt. Now, you can't just pretend that's not, not a real factor. You expressed some concern over how the crackdown is kind of playing out uh, in Bahrain. But what about the people who who have been victimized by this crackdown? I mean, how would the world of Formula One address those people? Well, you see, you've used the word, which is crackdown, which is a very emotive term. They have an obligation to keep law and order in their own country. They have a right to keep law and order in their own country. From, From our point of view, it might appear to be excessive and certainly what happened last year was excessive but I mean it's very difficult when you've got people who are determined to disrupt normal life it's a big question and nobody really seems to be totally clear on it right and if it's so difficult to figure this political situation out in Bahrain why don't the teams just cancel I think there's a discussion about cancelling the race I've heard some reports some team owners uh, have expressed their concerns for their staff and 
themselves and they they will be in China uh, this weekend talking about this issue, I'm sure of it. Um, what will come of that, I don't know. And Damon, your position right now is to commentate. Do you feel uh, you're even kind of qualified to weigh in on this or should be weighing in on this? Um, well, I think I'm qualified in so much as uh, I've been a world champion. I have the best interests of Formula One at heart, but maybe I should say nothing, you know, but then I think that that is perhaps part of the problem is that if people don't say what they think, then um, things drift off in a direction that um, is not necessarily uh, taking you to a destination you want to go to. Damon Hill, Formula One champion and commentator, thank you very much. Thank you. For our GeoQuiz today, we're looking for a Russian provincial city, a short train ride northeast of Moscow. The city's onion-domed churches and monasteries look out over the Volga River. It was in the news eight months ago because of a tragedy. A plane crash there took the lives of all the players on the city's top ice hockey team. It was a painful blow for everyone there, but now the city and the team are trying to move on. We're going to hear from the American coach who's been asked to lead the rebuilding effort on the ice in just a few seconds. Tom Rowe is the former assistant coach of the NHL's Carolina Hurricanes, but he has a new job now in Russia. Tom, tell us where you're headed next season to be head coach. Uh, well, I'll be heading over to Yaroslavl, Russia, which is northeast of Moscow, to begin a new season with the locomotive KHL hockey team. That's the Continental Hockey League in Russia. All right. So the city of Yaroslavl is the answer to our geo-quiz today. Now, this is going to be a big challenge, a rebuilding Lokomotiv Yaroslavl. You've got the logistical challenge, but also, and some of our listeners will remember the story, eight months ago, the entire Lokomotiv team died in a plane crash. So you've got an enormous emotional challenge, too. Well, it's a, it, it's a big challenge, but it's no different than uh, any team that I'd be taking over here in, in North America for the first time. And, and we're really looking to rebuild team chemistry. So it will be a great challenge uh, because of the team unity that we'll have to build amongst the coaching staff and the players. And then basically just making sure it meshes all as one team. In the old days of the 70s, the coaches would come in and just tell you, you know, how they wanted you to play, and that was it, and there was never any feedback from the players. You know, my approach is going to be different, where I really do want to have a lot of feedback from players and make sure that we're going to communicate on and off the ice. And then that'll be driven a lot, awful lot by our leadership group that we'll put together, which will comprise of a lot of our veterans, quality veteran players that we're going to sign. Lokomotiv has been putting a makeshift team on the ice and competing in a kind of triple-A hockey league in Russia. Will the clay you get to start molding be that team, or will you begin with a blank slate? Some of those players will be on our team in the KHL, and that was a, a team put together comprised of players of other KHL teams that were made available to Lokomotiv, and those players will definitely be on our KHL hockey team. How is your Russian, by the way? <laughs> I will say uh, probably the Russian players that I'll be coaching and the coaches that I'll coach with will have a lot better English than my Russian. But uh, we, my wife and I, my wife is very adventurous and very excited about it. She'll be enrolling in a, in a school over there to learn learn Russian. And so that, that's the other part of this is we're very excited about learning a new culture and obviously not knowing their language. But we will definitely be 
taking the time and putting the effort into learn learn Russian. And obviously, it, it won't be an easy language to learn, but it'll definitely be something exciting to try to learn. So for the short term, your wife is going to be your uh, Russian-English dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good because she's a, she's a lot smarter than I am. She'll pick it up a little easier. <laughs> you were uh, quite the skater back in the day yourself, Tom, when you were with the Washington Capitals in 1978. You were the first U.S.-born NHL player to score more than 30 goals in a season. What will you do to encourage that kind of play among the, the young Russian players in Yaroslavl? Well, you know, that that's the style that we will be using. It'll be a North American style, which is more north-south, very aggressive skating, uh, putting pressure on the puck and very high and high tempo offensive game. And, you know, I had some great teachers growing up and in pro as coaches. And basically what I want to do along with our other coaches on our staff is basically just give them our experiences. I mean, I believe that's what coaching is all about. That's what I believe teaching is all about is the experiences you've had from the time you were youth to, you know, mid thirties when you're playing the pro game is to live off of those experiences and try and explain it to the players and hopefully, you know, encouraging them to make plays and not worrying about making mistakes. And how is the Russian game different from the American, a Canadian, North American game? Some might say it's pure hockey with less fighting and throwing down of the gloves. What do you think? Well, they don't do as much fighting over there, which is great. And um, that's all I'm looking forward to. But it's more more of a uh, East-West game, a lot of fancy plays. They get a little more risky, making plays a little more creative. And that's the aspect of the game that I enjoy. But there are parts of the ice you can't be making fancy plays in. And that's the part that will teach the players where to do it and where not to do it. You know, moving from North Carolina to Yaroslavl, I can imagine it's going to be hard trading that great pulled pork barbecue of Raleigh for borscht and strong tea. What are you going to miss the most? Uh, the, the sweet iced tea I'll definitely miss, and uh, the pulled pork was always my favorite. But I understand if you uh, have borscht made the correct way by a Russian chef, there's nothing better. That's what I've been told, so I'm looking forward to that. That's the attitude, Tom. Tom Rowe on his way to becoming the new head coach of Lokomotiv Yaroslavl in Russia. Good luck. We'll be keeping an eye on your team for sure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marco. Tomorrow on The World, Vietnam looks west for economic opportunity. Vietnam needs to look to the future. And in order to industrialize and normalize the country, Vietnam needs to speak English. There is a national campaign to teach English. This 10-year-old boy in Hanoi remembers the first time he heard an American speak. I've been watched a video of Mr. Steve Jobs about the computers. I, I didn't hear and understand it from the first time. I didn't start English. But I see that people who speak English is someone who's very elegant. Elegant? Uh, it may have been the turtleneck. Well, since then, that boy has become Vietnam's youngest translator. I love English the first time I meet that, like love from the first sight. Why Vietnam is embracing English, that's tomorrow on The World. Let me remind you briefly of the ways to keep up with the world. At theworld.org is where you can find our videos and slideshows. It's also where you can subscribe to our daily and weekly podcasts. If you missed a story or a show, you can listen on the PRI mobile app for your phone. Download it at the iTunes or Android store. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PRI the world. Follow us on Twitter, too. Our Twitter handle is PRI the world. My own Twitter handle is Marco Werman. And always a failsafe is the world.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Not too many albums out there are recorded in a church. 
One that is, is the latest CD by the British folk group The Unthanks. So if you can hear me, if you're still The live recording is a tribute to the music of two English-born artists, Anthony Hegarty of Anthony and the Johnsons and Robert Wyatt. The Unthanks are also from England. The band is fronted by sisters Becky and Rachel Unthank, originally from Northumberland in the Northeast. And the church where the album was recorded is in London. Here's how Rachel Unthank describes it. Union Chapel is a, it's a gorgeous um, church. It's used as a venue quite a lot because it's a, just a really special place to play. It's one of our favourite venues, I think, especially in London. It's really kind of mm, round and so you can see all of the audience before you and above you and uh, it's usually really beautifully lit with candles and things and it's an exciting place to play and it does feel intimate even though it's quite big. How many people does it seat? Um, I'm, oh, I'm not very good at numbers. About 700, maybe. I'm not sure. It feels small, but uh, the, the sound is so big in spite of its uh, kind of gentleness. Yeah, well, it, there is a, a big, you know, acoustic because of the church, naturally, I think. And uh, we also played with a, well, 11-piece band, actually, in for those gigs. Mm. Now, I understand the impulse wanting to perform a, a sample of uh, one artist's work, but you and the other members of the Unthanks decided to take on Anthony Hegarty and Robert Wyatt. And just for our listeners who may not know, Anthony Hegarty is UK-born but raised in the U.S., a songwriter and singer and playwright. I guess you could call him a newer male version of Patti Smith, if I may be so bold. And Robert <laughs> Wyatt is a legend in English rock Poetry. I guess that's the best way I know how to describe them. So for an ensemble that's been pegged a folk group, why these two uh, gentlemen and why these two in tandem? Well, they're both people that we just we greatly admire. And we just thought it would be a treat for ourselves, really, a bit of self-indulgence to, you know, give ourselves a chance to explore the, this music that we love so much and and, and it really was um, like an experience because when you start to learn those songs you really have to break them down and see how they're put together and the way they sing and the way they put structure their music is very different to ours so it was really great to get our head in, into the music. Uh, I was going to ask you, I mean, as folk musicians, the Unthanks, uh, you know, you, you've got traditions that are hundreds of years old. H- had those been tapped out or was that repertoire just not providing a challenge that, that you wanted at this moment in time? No, not at all. Um, I think the way we were brought up really was me and Becky. I mean, our parents love folk music. That's your sister. And, yeah, me and Becky are sisters and... Um, um, and, but it was never precious, you know. It wasn't like we just must sing this tradition from our neck of the woods. It was sing a song that you enjoy, sing a song that you like, if that be a current song, if that be an old song. We've never really been that precious. It's not that we felt like we've run out of songs to sing in the folk world because there are so many songs we feel like we could never run out. It's just um, we just enjoy exploring whatever takes our fancy, which is a little bit indulgent, really but we enjoy it. (laughs) Right. Well, let's have a listen to uh, one track from uh, this two-night concert, uh, the album uh, 
live from the Union Chapel, London, uh, the songs of Robert Wyatt and Antony and the Johnsons. Here's uh, one of Robert Wyatt's best-known songs called Sea Song. song by Robert Wire performed there by The Unthanks. And uh, Rachel, that's you on vocals, yeah? No, that's Becky. Oh, that's Becky <laughs> it's my singing. sister. So break that down for us. I mean, coming from a folk tradition and suddenly you've got this song, a sea song by Robert Wyatt. Uh, when he sings it, his voice is also very gentle and uh, almost fragile. Uh, was that kind of a motivation for you to dig deeper? No, I think it really was. The, um, I think Adrian made Becky a compilation for one of her birthdays and put Sea Song on it. And Adrian, and Mac- it, Adrian McNally is a pianist and, and producer for The Young Things. Yeah, and I think the way it it almost sounds like a folk song to our ears, you know, and it was one that Becky felt like she would love to sing, you know, it's, if you have that connection with the song and you want to sing it, um, and then she, she so she did. Now, let's have a listen to uh, one of the uh, Anthony and the Johnsons tunes. This is uh, actually the first track on the album. It's called Bird Girl. It's hard to ignore the blurbs from both Anthony Hegarty and Robert Wyatt on the album cover. Anthony says about the music, I am flattered and mystified. And uh, (laughs) Robert Wyatt says, if I had to take a single summary of my music to the proverbial desert island, I wouldn't take one of my own records. I'd take the crystal clear interpretations of the unthanks. What do you think you and the unthanks did, Rachel, uh, or achieved to kind of gobsmack these, these two artists? Um, I've no idea. I mean, I think that's not really something we can answer ourselves because we just, you know, we sang these songs the only way we knew how in a way, which doesn't mean that we didn't give it a lot of thought. Um, Mm. Of course we did in the arrangements and how to place it, but that's how me and Becky sing. And we, yeah, we're just singing with our hearts on our sleeves, really, because for the love of their music. Well, Rachel Unthank, very good to speak with you. Lovely to speak to you as well. Thank you very much for having us on your show. The album is called The Songs of Robert Wyatt and Anthony and the Johnsons Live from the Union Chapel. You can see photos of the Unthanks taken at the Union Chapel show at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International